0: This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday, 10 to 2, on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app.
1: Isn't that interesting how they're going after Shear, but comparing him to the Ontario Premier, Doug Ford, I, I find that intriguing and obviously clearly aimed at voters in Ontario, but it just gives you a hint where this election campaign might be leading in the fall so here's our hot question of the day political attack ads on tv they fired harsh words toward justin trudeau and andrew Scheer during the raptors game last night so here's the question do these kind of tv ads sway your vote do these ads actually work would you say yes they make good points they do work or would you say No, they're too mean, they're too nasty, they're too partisan. Here's how you vote on that today. At CKNW on Twitter, you'll find the hot question of the day. Please give me a follow while you are there. Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. Phone me on the buzz line about this and tell me what you think of these attack ads. You think they're effective or not? Maybe for some people they backfire, make you want to vote against the party that's running them. Phone me on the buzz line on that, 604 331 buzz is the number 604-331-2899. As promised, let's talk about all those political attack ads that were saturating the airwaves last night during the Raptors game. My guest is Keith Baldry, Global News Bureau Chief at the BC Legislature. Hey, Keith.
2: Hey, great game last night, but uh, some interesting ads as well. Terrible ending to the game. It was. It was Terrible ending. It just means there's another one, though. I mean, at least one or two more. So it's, well, it uh, gives them
1: a more of an opportunity to run more attack more ads. More attack
2: ads. I mean, the, the, the anti sheer, anti-Trudeau forces could not have picked a better time than to air attack ads in the middle of that Raptors game, which I think the entire country was glued to.
1: Yeah, because the ratings on this for TV for the Raptors run here have been epic I mean just absolutely huge ratings yeah. so the cost to run these ads must also be huge they're well, spending a lot of money here. Oh, I
2: think we're talking at least $50,000 uh, per, per run on uh, per airing of the, that ad now uh, why it's also important for these ads to run from both perspectives is not only is it country well, the entire country uh, transfixed by the Raptors but uh, Ontario in particular is completely in, uh, engulfed in what's going on with the Raptors so the ratings in Toronto, Metro Toronto, the riding rich area of Ontario were massive, and that's why those ads got a a bigger airing and a bigger, more mass audience uh, showing than anything that happened in 2015.
1: Okay, speaking of Ontario, one of the more interesting ads last night, Keith, was the one that attacks Mm Sheer and basically portrays the guy as kind of like a puppet of Ontario Premier Doug Ford. You hear that ominous music <laughs> and then the alarm yeah. ringing at the end. It's, so. a, it,
2: it, it, uh, it's very effective, I think, because it, particularly in Ontario, it doesn't mean much to people in B.C. or Alberta, Saskatchewan, whatever, because uh, we don't have Doug Ford. But Doug Ford's numbers have tanked and, uh, in Ontario. He, they, it's like Ontario voters suddenly woke up from a, a dream like, what have we just done? Who did we just elect here? So Ford's on a rampage in terms of cutting services in Ontario, and uh, the Liberals are smartly trying to tie uh, Andrew Scheer's tail to Doug Ford, and I think it's probably going to have a, a, a positive impact for the Liberals. Yeah. There's already been reports. The Tories are somewhat freaked out about this, that uh, they've been saddled with a guy now who's very unpopular. Now, uh, the upside for the Tories is the Ontario legislature is not going to sit again until after the election, and that takes that will take Ford out of the public eye to some degree, but not entirely. Uh, so this is probably, I think, the chief worry of, of Andrew Scheer and the Tories right now is being linked to Doug Ford.
1: Yeah, I mean, Doug Ford has been the Premier of Ontario for about a year, and he has gone through a very controversial budget process there in Ontario where he cut a lot of spending and some some unpopular cuts as well. He cut some Medicare spending, Mm -hmm. for example. He cancelled some promised increases to mental health funding. He got into a real jam over autism funding in Ontario and took a lot of heat over that, and then he's been kind of walking it back and flip-flopping a bit, and it's hurt him in the polls. He's always kind of dipped in the polls. So you see how this... uh, this ad is trying to link Sheer to Ford and obviously aimed at Ontario voters, right? Well, so, so many ridings in Ontario, the whole election could be won or lost there.
2: Oh, exactly. I mean, yeah. Metro Toronto is really the, the key to the election, and uh, I think Ford's numbers tanking only help... Uh Trudeau, it's interesting this, the sort of blue wave that's going across the country, uh, with the conservative governments being elected. It's one thing to be, to be popular in opposition because you don't have to do anything and, and there's no, the, you're in government, you got to make some tough calls. And that's why you see, I think you're going to see, uh, Tory governments become less popular in the next few months because they're in government and they have to make some tough calls and not, and they're not popular. Okay. And that's going to reflect poorly on Mr. Shear.
1: Okay. Let's listen to another attack ad against Shear here. This, this is, uh, from a, a group, by the way, called Engage. Canada have a listen to this Andrew Scheer
3: another conservative prime minister he's a yes man to the one percent he'd say yes to tax cuts for the richest Canadians and big business he'd say yes to their tax cuts too following Doug Ford with conservative health care cuts hell yes Sheer's a yes man to them and that
1: means no to you Andrew Scheer his weakness will cost you Learn more at sheerweakness.ca Sheerweakness.ca Okay, this is both those ads attacking sheer by the same group, Engage Canada. So this is not a Liberal Party ad. This is an Engage Canada yeah. ad. Who is
2: this Engage Canada group? Well, I think it's pr- primarily unions, primarily yeah. Unifor, the union you and I belong to. Uh, yeah. is uh, very politically active and, and w- makes no bones of the fact they want Andrew Shear out of uh, power, not that he's in there yet. I think this adds a little weaker. I mean, it does tie at the very end to Doug Ford, which is a vulnerability for Mr. Shear. But, I mean, it's, it's, this is not the first time the left has painted the conservative uh, leader. He's as a friend of the 1%. A friend of the 1%, a friend yeah. of corporations. I mean, that's yeah. boilerplate, as you were saying before we, we went to air. I mean, that's just standard fare, typical left-wing portrayal Trail of a conservative leader, nothing new there at all. Now again, the magic words there, Doug Ford, at the very end, which again resonate with Ontario. And
1: voters. I'm not sure Sheer has promised to cut taxes for the richest no. Canadians. I haven't heard him say that. I mean, if he's on the record somewhere saying that, you know, I could stand That's, corrected. But I, I searched for I searched for the source on that this morning, couldn't find it.
2: Where Shear's well, where more vulnerable, and it's unfair, but he's vulnerable, is when he's tagged with extremism or or. Not, or tolerating intolerance uh with uh, far right candidates you know whether it's social conservatism anti abortion uh anti immigration that type of thing even though he himself is not i don't think can be uh, tagged with those things nevertheless the company he keeps makes him vulnerable to that and that's a more vulnerable uh, a, a bigger vulnerability for him but this you know he's Mr Corporation Mr 1% that's just going to fall flat with people
1: by the way these groups like engage canada these are known in Canada as third-party advertisers under electoral spending laws in Canada. In the United States, they're known as a PAC or mm-hmm. a political action committee. And the way this works in Canada is that these groups are they are allowed to advertise, but starting on June 30th, they're required to register with Elections Canada, and they also face spending limits. Yep. But that's on June 30th in the run-up to the fall that's, election. That's what we right are seeing these ads now. Right now, it's wide open. Yep,
2: and that's they it. don't have
1: to register; they can spend as much as they want.
2: And that happened in 2015 as well. So you don't really get to the bottom of who these groups are in terms of having to file reports and audited statements and such, uh, because uh, again, as you point out, the deadline, the the kickoff, really doesn't begin for a couple more weeks yet. Which is why I think you're going to see more of these ads come the next Raptors sure. game uh, on Thursday night.
1: Yeah, they can spend as much as they want right now, and they don't have to disclose anything. So now here's another ad. Now this one is an attack ad against. Trudeau and once again it's another one of these third-party ads this is from a group called shaping Canada's future and this is a group that clearly wants I think obviously the Conservatives to win the election so here's the attack against Trudeau well it's been four years let's talk about Justin
3: we should start with what he promised a balanced budget
4: and that didn't happen he promised electoral reform that was a lie have you seen the price of gas lately? His carbon tax is making it too expensive to drive. That's what he wants. He doesn't get people like us.
1: It's clear he's in over his head. He's certainly not his father. Justin Trudeau. He was never ready. Nice hair, though. Yeah. Now, now you remember, these are the same group of voters or people, average people gathered around the table, yeah. supposedly, right? From the ad four years ago, where the guy says at the end, nice hair though and I was waiting for him to say it again like I thought he was gonna say for sure he still has it's, nice it's, hair though but he didn't say it anyway.
2: it's odd that they resurrected this thing because uh, it's the same people it was not a, obviously because Trudeau won quite handsomely in 2015. That ad was not effective. Didn't it 20- didn't work, so why bring in the same people? <clears throat> you know, now they're they're uh, four years older, basically. Yeah. Uh, that guy sounds even older than he did in 2015. The grumpy old man. Well, isn't that demographic for the conservatives? Uh, well, I, that that grumpy old man is a is a conservative demographic. But I just I think this one's a little uh, hokey, uh, particularly since it didn't work in 2015, and they're just they're trying the same mode of attack that they're, they're sort of belittling Trudeau that he's too young, that he doesn't know what he's doing. I don't think that's where Trudeau is. Potentially vulnerable. I think it's more on his track record.
1: I kind of laughed at the one line in there, though, when the one guy says the carbon tax is making it too expensive to drive, and the other guy says that's what he wants. <laughs> I I laughed at that. I thought it was kind of funny.
2: But there's another version of that ad I've seen online. I didn't see it on TV. Where one of the female uh, panelists there around the table. Uh, they show a picture of Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott, and she says, "I don't like how he treats women. I think that's Ooh, that's more effective yeah. uh, potentially for for damaging Mr. Trudeau than the other things about carbon tax."
1: Okay, get set to see a lot more of these. Uh, I think because, like I said, no spending limits right now. That doesn't kick in until uh, a little later, so it's it's a free for all right now. And like you said, Keith, unfortunately, there will be another Raptors game, which is uh, too bad they didn't wrap it up last night. So it means more more of these ads Maybe probably coming. More. Yeah, maybe Thursday and Sunday.
2: Yeah, it could Who happen. Who
1: knows? Keith, thanks for coming in. All right. That's Keith Baldry. He's the Legislative Bureau Chief for Global News. Keep voting in our hot question of the day on this, by the way. At CKNW on Twitter is where you'll find it.
4: Companies that manufacture plastic products or sell items with plastic packaging will be responsible for the collection and recycling of their plastic waste. Whether we're talking about plastic bottles or cell phones, it will be up to businesses to take responsibility for the plastics they're manufacturing and putting out into the world.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. This is Mike Smith in for semi today. That, of course, the voice of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau with that big announcement this week on a ban on single-use plastic items in Canada. Uh, the Prime Minister is saying that will be brought in as early as 2021, so just two years from now, but take note of the conditional language there as early as 2021 so maybe it would be later than that there's a lot of questions after this big announcement this week on exactly how this ban is going to work on single-use plastic items and uh, these new rules on plastic recycling for example what exactly is going to be banned now trudeau's as well they're going to look at that they didn't bring out a specific list but there's a lot of items that have been mentioned anecdotally here in the last 48 hours or so plastic bags plastic straws cutlery plates q-tips fast food containers balloon sticks which i'm not sure what that is but they would potentially be banned as well but so many other questions about like how is this going to work what items will be banned when will they be banned what will replace these items What will be the impact on business and the economy? Let's talk about all these issues now with my guest, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy at Dalhousie University, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Hi.
4: Good afternoon.
1: Thanks a lot for coming on. What did you think of the Prime Minister's announcement this week?
4: Well, they've been in power since 2015. This problem has been lingering for many, many years. uh, And you're seeing all parties uh, jumping on this uh, plastic bandwagon uh, setting specific deadlines. So for the Liberals, it's 2021. For the NDP, it was 2022. The Greens are in for this year, 2019. So we'll see exactly how Conservatives uh, fit in all this. But Essentially, uh, I mean, what needs to be underscored is that plastics uh, have become a visible issue. I think everyone is aware. Everyone wants to um, get rid of this problem, and and, and politicians are just uh, speaking on behalf of Canadians. The solutions or solutions uh, um, are a little more ambiguous. I'm not sure exactly uh, if consumers appreciate how plastics have played a role in our lives and uh... i mean it, it had made it made it it's making our lives better but of course when you look at the environment things need to change
1: right i think you're bang on about the visibility aspect of it and i think maybe that's why trudeau and these other uh, political leaders think it's a good issue for them because everybody is very familiar with these items these plastic products that we use every single day and a lot of people have seen the, the photos of, you know, like sea turtles stuck and wrapped up in plastic garbage and things like that. And it's, it, it really hits home with people. So I can see how they would want to jump on on an issue like this. But like you say, there are so many unanswered questions here and such a major policy shift like this. Like, for example, what about the economic impact of something like this? What do you what do you think it could be?
4: No, uh, absolutely. So I I look at food. uh, My specialty is food distribution and policy, and plastics uh, play a huge role in food safety. People don't realize it, but it has kept our food safe. Yes, it actually has kept our food cheaper uh, and has reduced waste across the supply chain. Uh, Replacing plastic is no easy task, and and that's why you're seeing grocers now uh, announcing. Uh, initiatives like uh, Loblaw last week with The Loop uh, and uh, Metro just about a month ago uh, down east uh, announced that it was allowing customers to bring in their own containers but that again brings a whole new set of of risks with pathogens and allergens and uh, so I I don't think we've actually figured this thing out. There is some clear mobilization across the board. Everyone actually wants to fix this issue but uh, again as we actually, as we looked into this, this, this situation, we actually did release a study last week asking people, do you see any market currency in environmental factor? In other words, if the industry is, is to move on this and governments is to legislate on this, are you willing to pay? Are you willing to pay yeah. more? Because plastics yeah. is cheap. So likely, whatever we are going to come up with is going to cost more. And we ask Canadians, are you willing to pay more? Guess what the answer was?
1: <laughs> I can just imagine. No, I'm yeah. guessing.
4: Yeah. 87% of Canadians see no premium wow. in protecting the planet as they were grocery shopping. And so this is this is the reality. And industry knows. So it needs to fix the problem without getting more resources. Uh, It's the same with food safety. For many years, uh, there were more regulations being implemented, but uh, industry couldn't actually capitalize on these new initiatives just because people were expecting food safety. And so it's like selling a car with a seatbelt. Nobody wants to pay more for the seatbelt.
1: Okay, I wonder what's kind of discussions are going on in the boardrooms of a lot of these companies and and other employers in Canada that deal in in plastic products, just wondering where the heck is this government going with this and what the impact could be within it. Because one of the things that that Trudeau brought out uh, this week was he said that this thing will actually be great for the economy. He said that this could create 42,000 jobs. It could generate Billions of dollars in revenue. I don't know where he's getting these statistics other than maybe pulling them out of a hat. Do you know what he's talking about there with thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in revenue by doing this?
4: Well, uh, I mean, you can create all the jobs you want, you just need more revenues. It has to come from somewhere, yeah. it has to come from consumers in the market. And right now, Uh, you're dealing with a marketplace that is unwilling to recognize the market currency of the environment, at least not yet. And so that's the challenge, and that's why we actually wrote an op-ed in the Globe and Mail today uh, outlining that if we want to fix this plastic problem, consumers can't just stay on the sideline. They're going to have to do something. The loop presented by Loblaw uh, will come at a cost. And people will will it's basically the the system is very simple. You walk into the grocery store you'll buy uh, food products in a reusable container. Loblaws will actually pick up containers at your home once you're done, and the containers are brought back to the manufacturing plant so it can be they can be uh, refilled. That's how the loop works but in order to subscribe to that system, you need to pay. You need to submit a deposit, and uh, there are costs also uh, linked to that program. So in, in other words, if you want to use the loop, it's going to cost you more for your food. Are, will, wow. are people willing to do that for the planet? Right. The, the jury's still out.
1: All right. Speaking of Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie University, one of the things that is troubling me on this announcement is I think it's playing into a lot of people's concerns about plastic waste for sure. But there's so many unanswered questions here about like how this major policy shift would work in such a short time frame. What are the major unanswered questions that are leaping front of mind for you on this?
4: Well, I think uh, the one thing, the one major thing, again, in the food space that I cover, uh, that I've been covering for 20 years, are, are food safety regs. Yeah. We're, we're implementing uh, the Safe Food for Canadian Act right now. And when you look at the list of new regulations around traceability and lot numbers and lot numbers you need to put on packaging, it's hard to see how the industry won't use mold plastics. So if you are to change these regulations, uh, you have to harmonize or at least align your food safety uh, regulations with our environmental obligations. We've never really done that. We've actually increased the use of plastics. Well, the industry has increased the use of plastics, not necessarily because that—that's what they wanted. Is because what the—that's what the government wants. And that's—and right. the reason why the government actually wants this to happen is to protect the public. So that's why that's the one thing that needs to happen. The other thing, of course, is the whole issue of uh, of uh, plastic standards. It's all over the place. Lots of confusion. Uh, only 70% of all plastics uh, is recycled. Mm-hmm. That needs to actually change. Uh, and lastly, I would say compostable packaging. That's one thing that uh, more and more companies are doing. Uh, in Europe, uh, you walk into a grocery store, there's there's more and more compostable packaging. Uh, but those solutions are, are more costly, 25 to 50% more. So you need to incentivize the industry to, to use some of these, uh, these solutions or else uh, it's going to be hard to change right. anything.
1: Dr. Charlebois, I think you raised some great points. Thanks for taking the time for us today.
4: My pleasure. Okay. Okay. I
1: appreciate it a lot. Sylvain Charlebois, he is a professor in food distribution at Dalhousie University. I I thought he raised some really terrific points there about the impact of, of this program. Let's talk about the big E3 conference going on right now in Las Vegas. This is the biggest video game industry event of the year. So if you're a gamer like my kids are i'm not much of a video gamer myself i used to play a pretty mean super mario back when i had a nintendo but my kids are pretty big gamers and i'll tell you what this is a big employer in the city of vancouver as well a lot of video games in production in uh, vancouver so this is a huge industry event uh going on in vegas let's check in with mike agarbo now hey mike how's it going Mike, of course, Mike is the host of Get Connected right here on CKNW. Mike, can you describe what uh,
5: E3 is? Yes, an industry event for the video game industry to basically showcase the latest in hardware and, of course, actual video games coming out over the next year to uh, really hype up uh, the industry and the fan base. uh, Held every year down in uh, Los Angeles, Uh, thousands of people converge there to check out uh, the latest game trailers and uh, even hopefully try out uh, some demos uh, as well.
1: Okay, is it going on in Los Angeles or Vegas? Uh, that wrong?
5: I believe it was Los Angeles.
1: Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. So listen, I know um, you've been to this event in the past, right? Yes. Yeah, this you must be like a kid in a candy store down there when this thing's going on
5: oh it 's just mind numbing uh, just uh, how, how big it is, and just you know the the hundreds of different uh, video games uh, that are being uh, showcased uh, down there and uh, of course everyone 's always excited about the hardware announcements uh, as well from the big guys like uh, Microsoft and uh, Sony in the past
1: okay, and there was a big hardware announcement for Microsoft with a new game console, right
5: yeah, this is uh, kind of exciting uh, Microsoft uh, is uh, really big with the xbox the xbox one they 've announced uh, the new uh project scarlet they haven't given it the official na- uh, name yet but this is going to be coming out uh, uh later in 2020 so uh as far as what we know about the specs right now it's going to be uh available to play games in 8k not that we're even there with tvs yet uh and it'll be four times more powerful and faster than the uh the current uh, xbox ones that are uh, out in the marketplace uh, Whoa. right now
1: Whoa. yeah so
5: uh, game- gamers are pretty pretty excited about that
1: Okay. And when they got, when you bring out a brand new game console like that, really souped up machine like that, do they often, often have a lot of playable games right out of the, right out of the gate or do the gamers got to wait for the content for a while?
5: Uh, it's always the case, definitely. They're going to have some uh, A-list titles uh, definitely coming out of the gate, but there's not going to be a huge quantity right away. The big one that they'll be leading with, that it'll be coming with, uh, is Halo Infinite. And uh, oh. for all the Halo fans out there, uh, they're salivating uh, over, uh, you know, having a chance to play that uh, next, next year. So uh, much like Xbox launched with uh, Halo way, way back uh, in the day, uh, I think uh, 19 years ago uh, now, uh, they'll be launching again with uh, the latest Halo uh, Incarnation.
1: And what's the, what's the big selling point for this unit? It's just a more powerful game, so you'd have what, more, more dazzling graphics on the screen? Uh,
5: very much so. Uh, yeah. So it's always about the graphics, how smooth it is. This is going to be able to play games at 120 frames per second, uh, which is uh, very, very fast uh, for, for imagery. Uh, so uh, again, it's just about the power and just how much more lifelike and fluid it can make the characters uh, on screen.
1: Okay, speaking to Mike Agarbo, host of Get Connected here on CKNW, about the big E3 conference underway. A lot of big game, new games get announced at this event, Mike. And I know one of the big ones is Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. Here's a little listen to the trailer. Who are you? Got a name? Cal
4: Kestis. am Here on Jedi business.
3: Jedi are dead. Not
1: all of them. Okay, Mike, tell me about this game. This game is awesome. If you get a chance, uh, you have to Google
5: it and just check out the, uh, the actual uh, trailer uh, for it. Uh, the graphics are amazing, there's a lot of lightsaber duels, and it, it almost feels like you're in the movie playing uh, you know, with the characters uh, themselves. They'll have characters from Star Wars Rogue One, uh, and again, the graphics uh, and how fluid they are, uh, and how the characters are detailed are, are just simply, simply amazing. So uh, everyone's uh, pretty excited about that particular game, and it's getting a lot of good buzz right now.
1: Okay, when is that one coming out, or is that out already?
5: Uh, that's going to be coming out uh, later.
1: Okay, my yeah. kids will be into that one. They like this. They like the Star Wars games for sure. What uh, would that be like? A PC game or on on an Xbox or a PlayStation? Or they are they go across every platform?
5: They're going to go across platforms definitely yeah.
1: to to maximize the dollars. Okay, what else is high on your list there, Mike? And new games coming out? Uh,
5: there was a, a lot of buzz about uh, a new one called Cyberpunk twenty seventy seven. They actually had Keanu Reeves there to uh, uh, help uh, promote it. Uh, so oh. that. Uh, has uh, a lot of buzz uh, around it uh, and also uh, as far as the Nintendo goes uh, everyone's uh, excited about uh, the uh, the new announcement of Breath of the Wild 2 which is uh, another Zelda game which uh, you might uh, remember from back in the uh, earlier Nintendo days Yeah
1: yeah oh yeah I do I remember the uh, I remember the Zelda game back on the Super Nintendo's super super fun game this is like a big franchise for Nintendo right I mean Nintendo's still hanging in there as, as a major game developer
5: yeah, it's interesting. They've uh, they've made some uh, interesting bets as far as the hardware uh, is concerned. Uh, you know, over the many years, you know, obviously they had a huge hit with the Nintendo Wii. They've done okay with the uh, uh, Nintendo DSs and the handhelds, and now the Nintendo Switch, which which is kind of a combination handheld and. Uh, you know, home gaming console I think is doing okay. Uh, so you know, as long as they continue to innovate on the hardware side to come up with something different than uh, you know the Xboxes and the Sony Playstations, I think they'll do okay. And of course, they have the franchise characters uh, as well, uh, you know, Mario, Zelda, uh, and and all those uh, those guys which people keep flocking back to.
1: This is such a huge industry, Mike, and, and in Vancouver it's a big employer too, right? How how big is the video game uh, industry doing in Vancouver, and how how is the industry doing uh, these days?
5: Uh, it's doing very well. It's a uh, multi-billion dollar, uh, bigger than the film industry, uh, and, uh, you know, there's literally dozens of different uh, video game uh, developers here in in Vancouver, you know, from all the big guys like the EAs to a lot of uh, independents uh, as well. So, uh, you know, the, uh, the local schools here keep churning out, uh, uh, you know, video game developers uh, and graphics people, and uh, there's no shortage of work for them.
1: What else is big at down at the E3 right now? Anything else high on your radar there?
5: Yeah, I think we're going to see a change over the next five to ten years on how people video game, uh, and it's going to be cloud gaming or cloud streaming. Google announced their uh, uh, their cloud-based Stadia uh, video streaming uh, service, and now Microsoft has uh, announced their xCloud uh, video game streaming uh, service that uh, they'll be actually testing uh, in beta in the uh, coming months that uh, people will be able to try for free. So essentially, it'll turn any iPhone or Android phone, tablet, uh, into an actual high-end uh, gaming computer. It'll actually stream the uh, the game to the device uh, from, from the cloud or your Xbox uh, One system.
1: Mike, where can people listen to Get Connected? Of course, on CKNW uh,
5: every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. And, of course, we're also available on podcasts uh, on the Apple uh, Podcast Store and Google Play as well.
1: Sounds good, Mike. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. All right, that's Mike Agarbo. He's the host of Get Connected here on CKNW, talking about all the big announcements and reveals at E3, the big industry video game uh, conference underway. Let's talk about the negotiations now between the public school employers and the BC Teachers Union. My guest is Glenn Hansman, president of the BC Teachers Federation. Glenn, it's nice to have you back on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's nice to talk to you. Okay, what is the latest here? Because the last time I talked to you, things were not going well, but you said, oh, there's still lots of time to talk and we're not panicking yet, but it it sounds like things have gone from bad to worse here at the bargaining table. What's happening?
0: Well, it's sort of a treading water exercise at this point. I mean, we're certainly not panicking. There's lots of time, and, and even if we get past June 30th, Teachers certainly aren't in a position where we're going to be willing to accept something that's worse than what we currently have. And so, you know, really the pressure is on government to yank its proposals off the table and have a more respectful conversation around how we could identify gaps that are in the system, fill some of those holes without taking away direct supports from kids in any school district.
1: Okay, June 30th is the date that the current contract expires, correct?
0: That's true. Yeah, June 30th, last day of school.
1: Okay, what happens if
0: you don't have a deal on June 30th? Well, nothing really. The current terms and conditions of work uh, would continue into the fall. All the schools around the province right now are organizing their classes for next fall based on the current class size and class composition language that we have. And so we wouldn't be seeing yet anyway, any of the job losses that would occur if the employer's proposals were implemented. And so until there's an agreement, um, everything is just a holding pattern.
1: Okay. I just heard you say there that you want the government to yank everything off the table that they've effectively put on the table. And I just, how does that supposed to happen? I mean, it just seems like every other union has settled with this government under a negotiating mandate That they call a two, two, and two, a 2% raise every year in a three year deal. And they put the same mandate for you guys. How come you guys are the only ones who can't get a deal here? I mean, every single time, it's, it's like you guys are the ones who are unhappy or threatening to go on strike. It's like you guys are the spoiled child of these unions. Well, Why, not, why can't we get yeah. a deal here?
0: Teachers aren't threatening to go on strike. And this is the only table in the public sector where the employers come forward with massive concessions on the table. And it just so happens that their proposals that will make things worse are on class size and class composition, the very same topic that we were in court over for 14 years and that the previous government imposed on constitutional legislation. And so this is about proposals at the table. It's not about a relationship. It's not about whether people could get along or not. Teachers and then formerly healthcare workers back in 2002, unfortunately, were subjected to legislation that the courts later found to be unconstitutional. And that's not something teachers have asked for. And we're a bit shocked and surprised that the current government would be going after some of the same things. So this is a simple matter of removing proposals that shouldn't be there.
1: Why are you shocked and surprised? Because it's an NDP government that has pretty much supported this union over the years? No, we're shocked and
0: surprised given the high profile of our case and the fact that the Mm -hmm. restoration of teachers' class size language was what triggered the restoration of about 3,700 teaching jobs around the province. And so why... A government, any government would be trying to go after that very same language when we already had that experience between 2002 and 2016 without it. And we saw how reduced services were to kids across the province. And we saw yeah. what the benefit was over the past two school years of having that language back. And so that's the surprise. You know, we're, language is not frozen in stone. It's not right. carved into stone. We've brought proposals forward to try to amel- ameliorate some of the problems out there fill in some of the holes that exist around the province we're not expecting to solve every problem but we're certainly not going to agree to something that's going to take us backwards and that's the difference between what's happening at our table and what happened at every other let, public sector table
1: let me ask you this and speaking to Glenn Hansman he's the president of the BC Teachers Federation if if the government were to agree to everything that you're asking for, how much would it cost taxpayers?
0: Well, we're not expecting them to say yes to everything. We re- recognize that it's a three-year deal, likely. And How much so, would it
1: cost, though? This is my question to you. How much would it cost?
0: Well, we haven't totaled it up, and nor do we have sort of a final figure where it's like we're only going to agree if it's this dollar amount. We haven't proposed anything like that.
1: What kind of bargaining is that if you haven't added it up?
0: Well, I don't think anyone on their side either expects to get every change that they're proposing in any round of bargaining. But we do need to make some steps forward, especially for our locals around the province that don't have class size protections. Yeah. And we also need to see some movement forward to close the salary gap. We are not expecting to catch up to teachers in me, Alberta and Ontario, Manitoba in one round of bargaining, but there needs to be movement forward.
1: Let me let me put this to you. Alan Schell who is the guy from the, the BC Public Service or uh, BC Public School Employers Association. So this is the guy who's negotiating with you. He says that if they gave you guys what you want, what you're demanding at the table, it would cost hundreds of millions of dollars added to the system. Hundreds of millions of dollars and the money's not there. Well, in, that?
0: education budget is around the $6 billion range now. And so if we're looking at trying to improve special education services in school districts around the province, that costs money. And it's money that parents support and want to see there. Where's Whether the that's all achieved come from? at the bargaining table or not is another matter. It's something what? government could always do.
1: Glenn, where is this money supposed to come from? Hundreds of millions of dollars. They've settled with all these other unions. The nurses have settled. The BCGU has settled. Everybody's settled for a 2% raise.
0: Well, the sticking point at this point is the fact that there's proposals that would take us backwards. If those disappear, then that changes the conversation at the table.
1: Do you rule out a strike?
0: Oh, I don't think we'd rule out any options, but that's not something we're talking about right now. There's a contract in place. Bargaining is continuing, and it looks like we're going to have to sort of dig in for the long haul because... As long as there's proposals that are there that would take away teaching jobs from kids in Lower Mainland and Vancouver Island school districts, there's no deal to be had. And so the likelihood of a deal before the end of June with those proposals there is zero.
1: Glenn, I just got a minute left here. The government told me that they would be willing to continue bargaining with you guys through the summer. And I heard you say earlier that you guys were willing to sit down and bargain through the summer too. But the only way the government's going to do that is if you guys are willing to accept that they have a governing man, a bargaining mandate here, it's the same one that they've had with every other public sector union, and if you're going to continue to demand more than the mandate, then there's no talks. What do you say to that?
0: Well, we've proposed dates in the summer and the fall, and I think parents and the public would expect both parties to be at the table. And the fact that there's proposals that would take teachers backward is not accounted for in their mandate. And so no other union has had to give up things in order to fit into the box that the government has.
1: Do you think that what if they lock you guys out?
0: Well, I think that would be a very unwise decision. And I think that would be highly unlikely. It would also be a tremendous blowback from parents and the public over, over what, over the size of classes, things that this government campaigned on highly unlikely.
1: Glenn, thanks for this. Thank you. Thanks for coming in. Glenn Hansman, he's the president of the B.C. Teachers Federation. Let's talk about Surrey policing now and if the city is going to get its own municipal police force. Of course, everybody waiting now for the provincial government to respond to the Surrey city's uh, plan to transition from the RCMP to a local municipal police force. Do you want to be a cop in Surrey if this uh, plan is approved? The city, uh, can considering incentives, including more holidays uh, for to keep current members of the RCMP... Uh, employed with a local police force also to bring in incentives possibly for new police officers as well global news senior reporter janet brown has been on this story she joins me now hi janet
3: Hi, Mike. Good afternoon. And yes, just drilling down into this policing report that was released last week uh, without any redactions, which was surprising to a lot of people. And as you say, uh, still waiting for Solicitor General Mike Farnworth to make a decision, yay or nay, whether this is going to move ahead. I uh, talked to him last Thursday. He was in Cloverdale. And uh, he told me he's certainly not going to be rushed, him and his staff and other officials within his ministry, not going to be rushed, going to take the time to do diligence in in terms of this but um if you look into the report mike it's it seems as if uh they want to get rolling on this pretty soon the city of surrey and it's talking about possibly hiring a new chief sometime between july and september So to me, uh, that seems like the Solicitor General only has the next uh, couple of weeks to make a decision. Uh, I know he's not working towards the city's timeline, but at the same time, it looks like they want to get things going pretty soon, and I think that's a given. But in terms of incentives, uh, reading this report, really interesting, Mike – First of all, let me read a little bit of this paragraph. It says, uh, joining an emerging new department will appeal to many serving officers who are looking for new challenges and new opportunities in Metro Vancouver. It says it would be a natural to expect a significant amount of interest among current. Surrey RCMP members, and it says these officers uh, likely reside within the Metro Vancouver area and already have experience serving the citizens of Surrey. Then it goes on to say this is key an incentive that could be offered exclusively, Mike, to currently serving Surrey RCMP members. Who decide to apply to become members of the new Surrey PD is that upon being hired, each of them will receive 40 additional hours of leave to be used in the year 2022 or thereafter. So, a week, a, a, an extra week of holidays. It yeah. says uh, a similar concept was used by the Vancouver Police Department of its as part of its search and employ campaigns where the VPD members could receive also 40 hours of leave by recommending a new applicant who ended up being hired. Um, the report says this would be appealing for officers, especially those who have fewer years of service and therefore smaller allotments of leave available to them. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's the question. Would you, as a member of Surrey RCMP right now, to move over to a Surrey Police Department, uh, would that be appealing to you, to get an extra week of holidays? And let's face it, that you know a lot of people are always clamoring for more holiday time. Yeah. So I don't know. That's the question for many members right now, Mike.
1: Okay, that's very interesting, Janet, that that is in there. There's an interesting sweetener to try and get the RCMP to current members to join this new municipal police force. Why does the city feel it's necessary to offer an incentive like that? Are they worried that a lot of these Mounties would would leave?
3: Well, I'll tell you, Mike, the the big thing here, and it's still not answered yet, is the pension that the RCMP members have with the Surrey RCMP portable or movable with them to a police, a civic police force. We still don't have the answers to that. Um, At the mayor's availability last week, I asked him about that. Is that cleared up yet? And he said, no, it's a good question. No, we are still talking about it. Yes, I think it can happen, but no, it's not cast in stone yet. So a lot of these members, especially longer-term serving Surrey RCMP members, they don't know that if they leave the RCMP, go to a civic force if their pension will move with them. And that's huge, let's face it. That is key uh, to many members in all of this. Any officer I talk to who belongs to the Surrey RCMP, that's the first thing they bring up with me their pension and i think that's very understandable for sure
1: okay i wonder though if if a guy is worried about or or a a female officer too of course if they're worried about losing their their pension would an extra week's holiday be a sufficient incentive to say sure i'll i'll join this new police force i mean giving up your pension even if you think there's even a, a modest risk of losing it that's a that's a big gamble
3: it's a huge gamble, and yeah. I don't think they're actually going to lose it, but it, it's a question of what happens to it, what becomes of it. Right. Um, and and there's and what's interesting, too, Mike, they're also in, uh, also in this report offering or suggesting incentives for recruit candidates, those folks not in policing yet. Um, it says, in order to remove potential barriers and make the process more appealing, especially for low-income applicants, the City of Surrey could also consider covering the cost of the criminal record check and the medical exam for these applicants it says while this may seem like a minor consideration these two steps combine for a total cost savings of roughly 555 dollars which can be a burden for many individuals so that's mm. interesting as well will that make a difference to folks if, if the city covers off that cost
1: well, if you want to be a cop it sounds like this is a good time to be looking for a job as a police officer. Surrey's going to be hiring and offering incentives here. Here's, here's another thing I've heard, Janet. I, I got a feeling you probably heard the same thing, too. What about all these other police departments around the lower mainland? And I'm thinking primarily the Vancouver Police Department. Could some of those officers decide, you know what? I already live in Surrey. Maybe I'm a Vancouver cop, but I live in Surrey. Maybe I'll go join this new Surrey police force, and then I can work closer to home. I I wonder if some of these other forces, like the Vancouver police, are worried about losing some of their people.
3: I would think so, Mike, and that's exactly another thing that Mayor McCallum brought up last week. He says he's talked to a couple of officers, several officers in Vancouver, Delta police as well, who say yes. We live in Surrey. Uh, We chose to live in Surrey, but we have that horrendous commute into Vancouver. Yes, absolutely. We're looking to move over to the Surrey PD. So, yeah, it could cause a lot of upset and loss for Vancouver, for instance, maybe even Delta. Uh, It'll be interesting to see what happens. Absolutely, Mike, in in the coming weeks and days. But I think things once, if, if the Solicitor General approves this, things are going to start to move very quickly afterwards.
1: Janet, great job in this story. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Mike. Global News senior reporter Janet Brown with the latest on Surrey's plan to get rid of the Mounties and transition to a local police department. In the New York Times, I encourage you to check out online, the headline, the day the music burned. It was the biggest disaster in the history of the music business, and almost nobody knew about it. It's the untold story of a fire that took place at Universal Studios Hollywood 11 years ago that burned up some of the master tape recordings of some of the most iconic artists in American history. And I'm talking classic jazz artists from yesteryear and and a lot of uh, modern artists as well. Incredible story. Let's check in now with Canadian Press Entertainment reporter David Friend. He uh, writes about pop culture music film tv social media for canada's national news agency i'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show hi david hi thanks for coming on i found out about this story by following you on twitter which i encourage people to do um and this was an amazing story so let's talk about this david get some amazing reporting here by the new york times when did this fire happen it
6: was back june 1st 2008 so i I would imagine most people have probably long forgotten about it, but if you think back, you might remember the headlines because um, this fire was what destroyed the famous set that's featured in Back to the Future, sort of a Times Square space. Um, It's part of the Universal Studios lot tour for decades. Um, I swung by there many times back back in the mid-2000s.
1: Yeah, I think I remember visiting there once uh, as well on a, on a little vacation. And yeah, people might vaguely remember that fire. Um, now we're finding out more about what happened here. What did, what did was said by officials at the time of this fire? I mean, they did say that stuff, that some stuff was damaged, but now we're finding out the extent eleven years later of how much was lost here. But what did they say at the time of the fire?
6: Back then, they were highlighting the fact that it destroyed the King Kong uh, exhibit. Basically, part of the studio back lot tour would sort of ride through the space where King Kong would emerge from some buildings and sort of taunt you in your, in your little street car before you moved on to the next stop. Um, so that was one of the highlights uh, that... Grabbed headlines at the time and then Universal also acknowledged that what they said were a lot of uh, copies of films that were distributed to film festivals, for example, uh, you know, older prints of classic movies, they were lost. So the perception from a lot of people um, and, and from reporters at the time was that, you know, the damage wasn't huge, of course, it, you know, artistically speaking. Uh, So it kind of faded away after
1: that. (laughs) Right. And now we're discovering that a lot more was lost in this fire than most people knew, including some of the master tape recordings of iconic artists. I mean, you talk about modern artists like Elton John, uh, Joni Mitchell, uh, Soundgarden, Nirvana, but also going back into like these are the giants, the Canadian or American jazz artists like Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington. Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, billy Holiday. Oh. My goodness. I mean, these master recordings burned up in this fire. Have a little listen to this now, David. We put together a little short montage of some of the the re- master recordings may have been lost in this fire.
4: One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the o'clock tonight. At
0: last. my love has come along.
1: Okay, David. Obviously, this this music is not lost forever because there's copies and there are millions of, of records, of vinyl records pressed of this music, but we've lost a lot of these master tapes, these master recordings. What is a master recording and why are they important?
6: So a master recording is the original piece of music. The, the track that's laid down in the studio, or the tracks, rather. Um, sort of, if you think about the first generation, it's where the source is for all of those vinyl records, CDs, MP3s, and streaming sites. It's where they get the what ultimately lands in their hands. So these master recordings are sort of considered... They have a lot of data that you might not have on another piece, like your, your vinyl recording is like a second or third generation of that recording. But when, right. for example, the Beatles restored their albums, they went back to the masters to get that extra sound to create the new mixes. Um, without the master, you don't have all of that information, all of that all of that sound.
1: Right, and this boy—that's just tragic to think of. So much, so many of these master recordings were were lost in this fire. David, why are we only finding out about this now? I mean, this fire happened 11 years ago, and now we we hear this shocking news uh, today on it.
6: Well, some great reporting from the New York Times. They yeah. they uh, did some interviews with some people who worked at the space. Um, they unearthed some documents that were internally distributed between Universal executives. But the, on the front lines, the the publicists and the spokespeople were sort of doing spin, kind of. Uh, I don't know if I want to say covering up, but definitely downplaying what happened here. And, and today they, Universal has come out, Universal Music, and, and sort of downplayed again what's in the New York Times report pointing out that they believe some of it's erroneous, but they also didn't offer much in terms of detail. They, they disputed that some of these recordings were lost, they wouldn't say, say which ones weren't lost. Um, but one thing we didn't point out are the session masters, which are something that were stored in that space as well. And they're the recordings that uh, are sort of like the... The rough, the rough start where musicians are are performing and, and put down tracks that maybe haven't been released on an album. So one of the things when we're talking about the value of what was what was lost there is that some of these songs haven't been commercially released. So the, potentially wow. there could have been an Elton John song that was recorded back in the '70s that we have no idea of. That might have come out when when Elton John passes someday, as, as many musicians do release those albums
1: later. Yeah, boy, what a tragic th- tragic thought that is. Are we doing enough, do you think, David, to preserve uh, these important artistic treasures? I mean, we were talking about... You know, I mean, this is kind of the sort of the cultural treasures of America or our culture here. Are we doing enough to protect mm-hmm. that?
6: Well, to me, this points to some issues that Canadian labels should also be answering to, or at least considering. I'm not sure that executives at the labels, which have merged many times over over the past couple of decades, I'm not sure that they're even aware of the huge musical heritage that they could potentially be losing, or that at least is sitting on a shelf. Um, and not in its proper form. Um, So I think in Canada, we need to start asking some questions about what our labels are doing to ensure that those recordings from Gordon Lightfoot and from even, you know, pop stars like Corey Hart, some of these master recordings are sitting inside uh, uh, museums across the country and not really in the state that perhaps they should be. And it hasn't been a topic that's been discussed all that much in Canada yet.
1: Okay, maybe a timely wake-up call for sure. Fascinating story. David, thanks for coming on to talk about it today. Thank you. I appreciate it a lot. That is David Friend. He's a Canadian press reporter. He covers pop culture for them.